The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're ready to go. A few moments of silent prayer for... Uh, Use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. We need to make sure we're in fellowship under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Your word addresses so many different areas of history and life that it is not uh, just some simple, superficial religious text. But in it, we see that you are the God of history, who controls history, who prophesies accurately the events of history. And in that, we have tremendous evidence that this book is not simply a product of human imagination, but is indeed the revelation of an eternal God to his people. Father, we pray now as we study these events in Daniel chapter 8 that you would help us to understand these, uh, assimilate all the details, and that this would provide further uh, framework for us in the understanding of the outworking of your plan for Israel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 8. And we will continue our study in Daniel 8, where we get a profile of the Antichrist. Daniel 8 really gives us a picture of an individual who came to the foreground historically in the ancient world, and most of this prophecy is fulfilled or was fulfilled in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was Antiochus the Fourth of Syria. Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is a type of the Antichrist. He was a historical figure. And in this uh, prophecy, this uh, unusual prophecy in Daniel 8, we get a profile of the Antichrist. And the way this ha- takes place in terms of uh, prophetic terminology is you have a fulfillment of prophecy. The historical part of it is fulfilled with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. You don't talk about double fulfillment when you talk about prophecy because a prophecy can only be fulfilled once if all the details are taking place. Now, some people want to look at this and say, well, it's double fulfillment. You had it partially fulfilled with um, Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it's a greater fulfillment with the Antichrist. But if you understand the word partial correctly, it can either be fulfilled or it's not fulfilled, but partial fulfillment is a contradiction of terms. So there's only one fulfillment, and that is, that's historical fulfillment is in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, but he is then used by God the Holy Spirit as a type of the Antichrist. So by looking at Antiochus Epiphanes and studying him, we can learn something about uh, the character of the Antichrist and the activities of the Antichrist. And it 
as I stated last time, it's going to surprise a lot of people because we think that the Antichrist is going to show up and he's going to have a certain uh, appearance and he's going to be dressed in black and he's going to look evil and he's going to have a 666 tattooed across his forehead and everybody's going to immediately know that this is an evil guy. And the problem is he's going to have a wonderful personality. He's going to do all kinds of things to make people uh, like him. He'll probably be very magnanimous with uh, the whatever money he has available to him, and he will have a fantastic welfare program, give out lots of food stamps, and have lots of uh, social programs to make everybody happy, so everybody will think he's wonderful. He's going to be uh, have an excellent uh, personality and reputation, and no criticism is going to stick to him. He's going to be like some presidents we've had recently, that uh, no matter what they do, they manage to uh, uh, get away with it. And uh, Antiochus was like that at the beginning point of his of his uh, reign until uh, a few things went south for him, and as things went bad, he um, he began to get a little uh, arrogant and basically went nuts. So from looking at this study of Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 8, we're going to get a profile of uh, the Antichrist. Now let's just review a couple of things that we saw last time in relationship to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. First of all, he is going to be a successor to Alexander the Great. This in the vision that Daniel had. He looked and he saw a ram in verse 3, a ram which had two horns standing in the front of the canal, and that represented Media Persia. The two horns represent the Medes and the Persians. Then in verse 5, a male goat comes along from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and this goat has a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and that is Alexander the Great. And he comes up to the ram that had two horns, and destroys that ram. And then we're told that the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large large horn was broken. That's in verse 8. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns. So this outlines the plan of this this second animal, this ram, and this, or excuse me, the the male goat and the he-goat represents the whole panorama of the Greek Empire. So this figure that comes up later on, this little horn in this chapter, comes up on the on the he-goat, and that is Greece. Now, there's a little horn that we talked about in Daniel 7. And the little horn in Daniel 7 came up on the fourth beast, which was Rome. So don't confuse the little horn in Daniel 8 with the little horn in Daniel 7. They're two different individuals. The little horn in Daniel 7 comes out of the Roman Empire, and that's the Antichrist. The little horn in Daniel 8 comes up out of the he-goat, which is Greece. So they're two different individuals. But it is the little horn of Daniel 8 that is the type of the little horn of Daniel 7. So first of all, he's a successor to Alexander the Great. Second, we see that he's going to move south and east of his position and against what is literally in the Hebrew the desire, and it's translated the beautiful land. So he is going to move south, which is towards Jerusalem. He's going to come from Syria in the north. And he also heads east to consolidate his control over the old Babylonian, or what was, or the area that was the old Babylonian empire. Third, he will persecute the Jews in the land. Now this is important. Because if he's going to persecute the Jews in the land, remember Daniel is writing this and seeing this in about 551 B.C. Jews aren't in the land. They're in captivity. They're in Babylon. So if he's seeing this prophecy that he is going to, that the little horn will persecute the Jews in the land, then that means that the Jews must return to the land in order for this to be fulfilled. So that was an encouragement to the Jews that were in captivity. Fourth thing we saw about the little horn last week is that he would attack the entire Old Testament religion. He would make a personal assault and an attempt to destroy the religion of Israel. And then the fifth thing is that we saw is that this happens towards the end of this period. It says towards the latter time 
and it's the end of the Greek kingdom. So this summarizes the events that we covered last time down. I think we got as far as about verse 11 or 12 last time, but we're backing up a little bit now to get some more information. Now remember, there are three key principles for understanding Scripture. We have a little saying, we haven't used it much in a while, but it's the ICE principle, I-C-E. The I stands for isagogics, the C stands for categories, and the E stands for exegesis. Now, isagogics has to do with the historical background. key principle in interpreting Scripture is that the Scripture must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. So we have to understand the historical background of so many passages. And one of the problems that we get into with Daniel is that Daniel sort of presumes a phenomenal understanding of events that took place between about 600 B.C. or 605 B.C. with the first captivity, the first uh, group of young men taken out to Babylon between 605 B.C. and about 150 B.C. Now, most of you remember taking courses where you spend a lot of time studying that in high school, don't you? Well, see, that's the problem is we're, we have such a horrible education system today that nobody ever under, learns anything about uh, much American history or modern history or world history, much less something that happened in the ancient world. So part of the thing that we have to do to understand Daniel is to spend a lot of time going over ancient history again and again and again. And I know that is a little rugged for some of you, but for others of you, you enjoy it. But if we're going to understand what is covered in Daniel 11 and in Daniel 12, we're going to have to do some heavy background study in the history of the Greek Empire, because everything that's coming up in Daniel, Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, is going to presume that you have an excellent understanding of the history of the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. Since you don't, we're going to have to review that uh, frequently. Now, just to give you that broad panorama understanding, we have here the, the the picture on the on the screen of the image that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter two. That lays out the chronological flow of ancient history. Babylon was the first kingdom. That's the head of gold in Daniel two, and was the uh, winged lion in Daniel seven. The Babylonian Empire lasted from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. and is most uh, widely represented by Nebuchadnezzar. I think everybody has that down by now. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was the really established the Babylonian Empire, and then it was um, Belshazzar who was the last emperor when the uh, Persians under Cyrus the Great came in and destroyed the Babylonian Empire. So the Medo-Persian Empire lasts from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C., and it is a combination of those two groups, the Medes and the Persians, the Persians being the most dominant side. Now, they're important, and I've gone over this before in Daniel 7. One of the most important things that the Persians did was their invasion of Greece. They looked westward, and they, after conquering the Lydian Empire that was in Turkey, or Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, they looked across the Aegean Sea, and under Darius III and under Xerxes, they made an assault down the Greek peninsula. That's where you get battles like Marathon, which is where we get the distance of 26-point-something miles for a marathon runner, the distance from Marathon back to Athens when the runner ran to warn of the um, uh, tactics and strategy of the Persians so they could uh, pull their forces back and hit them while the Persians were making an end run uh, for a naval battle. So you have the Persian Empire, and the result of that was it really angered the Greeks. So by 330 to 340 B.C., when, or 340 to 330 B.C., when Alexander the Great comes to power, he wants to wreak vengeance on the Persians and conquer the Persians, which he does in five short years. And then he died in 331 B.C., but by then he has established the Greek Empire, and it will split in four Directions. It will split among four of his generals, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. And we have to understand that. And then Greece, eventually, the Greek Empire 
is destroyed by Rome in 146 B.C., and that begins the Roman period. But what we're looking at in Daniel 8 is what takes place between 331 B.C. and 146 B.C. In, uh, with the Greek Empire. So let's look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 8. There we read that the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. That's a reference to Alexander the Great. Magnified himself exceedingly, and he did that through his conquests, through his conquests of the Persians, and then he headed down through what's called the Levant or, or Palestine. Then he heads across to Egypt, and he reversed himself, and he went back to Persia and finally conquered the Persians again, defeated their armies again, and then took his armies all the way east to the Indus River, conquering the entire area of what we would call today as Iran, Iraq, uh, and Afghanistan. All of that was conquered by Alexander the Great, and then he turned around, went back to Babylon, had a great party, got drunk, and died. He had become an alcoholic by that time. Once you've conquered the world, there wasn't much else to do. So he spent a lot of time partying, and it got the best of him, and he died. In his, He was about 32, 33 years of age when he died. And then there was no one else who could pull the kingdom together. That's what the second part of Daniel 8 refers to. As soon as he was mighty, as soon as he had completed his conquest, the large, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. These are, this is the focus and the development of the Greek empire for the next 200 years. Who are the four conspicuous horns? We have first of all Ptolemy. Ptolemy assumed control of the Egyptian section. He was the strongest of these four generals. He took control of Egypt, and it was really under his protection, under his sponsorship, that Seleucus is going to take control of Syria. But he takes control of Egypt. He establishes a great city up on the Mediterranean, which he names after Alexander, calls it Alexandria. And he begins a new line of Egyptian rulers, the last of which is Cleopatra VII. That's the one everybody knows about who had an affair with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. She was the seventh Cleopatra in her line. The second general that took control of Syria, took control of Syria and Babylon was Seleucus. And that begins the Seleucid dynasty. And he begins a hereditary line of rulers from which this little horn in Daniel comes. So he, this study tonight is going to be basically a history lesson on the Seleucid Empire. The third general was Cassander, and he took control of Macedonia and Greece. And he then the fourth general was Lysimachus, who took control of Thrace and Asia Minor. Now, in case your geography is a little weak, I have a map for you here. And here we see Ptolemy down here in the pink section. This is Egypt, and he also initially has control of Palestine, this area along the southeastern part of the Mediterranean. Then the white section is that section of control that went to Seleucus, and he has uh, the southeastern section of Asia Minor, Syria, as well as most of modern Iran and Iraq. That went to Seleucus. Lysimachus, take this pink section up here to the northwest of Turkey, the northwestern part of Turkey, and Thrace, which is just on the western coast of the Black Sea. And then Cassander took Greece and Macedonia. But this doesn't last long. Before long, Lysimachus loses control, and this whole area it comes under the control of Cassander's heirs. And then Seleucus and Ptolemy are going to battle it out for who gets control of Palestine. And that is what we will focus on. Now, we're not just guessing as to what this verse means, as to the fact that this large horn is broken and there are four horns that come up, because the angel interprets this for Daniel. The Bible is not some guessing game in terms of interpretation. Daniel 8.21 reads, And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, 
and the Lord, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. None of them had the same power, the same strength that Alexander had. And in the latter period of their rule, notice the latter period of their rule. So we're not talking about the beginning, but towards the end of the period of what's called the Hellenistic empires. This is the period of the, of the Hellenistic empires. When the transgressors have, won their, their, have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. So this is part of the kind of character that the Antichrist is going to have. He's going to be insolent, and that is arrogant towards God, and skilled in intrigue. That means he knows how to manipulate people, he knows how to win people to his side, and he knows how to uh, maneuver and manipulate the powers around him. Now, to get an understanding, then in verse 23 we read, and in the latter period of their... Okay, we've already read that. Now, two, there's really three critical things we have to understand historically before we're going to grasp what's going on in this passage. And they have to do with certain historical events that took place in or right after the breakup of Alexander's empire. The first has to do with the Hellenization of the Jews. The Jews for, at this point, this is roughly 500 or, or about 300 B.C., the time that we're talking about under the, uh, under the Greek Empire is about 300 B.C. And so for about 2,000 years, the Jews have managed to maintain a, a strict Jewish culture and environment in the land. But what happens now is they begin to adopt the Greek ways, and this takes this happens uh, primarily because of uh, their colonies that are taken out, uh, or colonies of Jews that are uh, removed and relocated from Palestine. When Ptolemy took over Egypt, he immediately took control over Israel, and he entered Jerusalem on a Sabbath day in 320 B.C. and conquered it. He took a, uh, one group of Jews to Egypt to move into Alexandria because he saw the Jews as great administrators and as stable citizens. They would provide stability. They were educated, and he wanted to establish a strong society there. Eventually, that group of Jews grew to take over 20% of Alexandria. They became the most prominent cultural, social, and uh, administrative leaders in Alexandria. But what happened along the way is these Jews began to amalgamate with the Greek ideas and they began to adopt Greek culture. So much so that by the time you get into the period of the 2nd century B.C., about 185, 175 B.C., they, they don't read Hebrew anymore. There's not a Jew in Alexandria that can read or understand Hebrew anymore and they can't understand their Hebrew Bible. So the Ptolemy of that time authorized a translation of the Old Testament into Greek, and that became known as the Septuagint. And it is called the Septuagint because the legend, and I want to emphasize the legend, is that the Pentateuch was translated by 70 rabbis in 70 days. And so the term Septuagint, sept, refers to 70 and so this is often abbreviated the LXX, and that's how it is usually referred to, either as a Septuagint or the LXX. And this just emphasizes the Hellenization. Now, as this one section of the, of, of the Jewish society becomes more and more Greek in their customs, in their language, in their culture, more and more open to Greek ideas and Greek religious ideas, and they become more and more distanced from the Mosaic law and Mosaic customs and dietary laws, of course that's going to set up a real uh, division in, in, among the Jews. And so whenever you have, the, the law of physics is whenever you have any action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so just as these Hellenized Jews, which we might want to call liberalized Jews, as they become more and more Hellenized, there is an equal reaction 
on the other side, and that group is known as the Hasidim, not the modern Hasidics. This is where they get their name. But they were originally called the Hasidim or the Hasidians, and they were an extremely conservative party. And we will see how they play a role um, when we get to the third point. But before we get there, we have to stop and understand the second point. First point we see is that the Jews are becoming more and more Hellenized. Their distinctiveness is being lost. They're losing the law. They're losing their dietary code. They're losing the way they dress. They're beginning to look, act, and think like Greeks and no longer, no longer like Jews. Now, the second thing that happens during this time has to do with the conflict between the rising power of Rome in the West and the Seleucids in uh, Syria. And this ultimately ends up in one of the, uh, <clears throat> it's sort of like the Treaty of Versailles of, the ancient, of ancient history, and it's the Peace uh, of Apamea. Now, what happens here is that up in the north, in the northern part of, uh, of Greece and Macedonia, Philip V is concerned about his western boundary. That's pushing over towards modern Yugoslavia and the area of Bosnia and Serbia that we see today. And he's concerned about his western border because the Romans have, are now gaining more and more power and they're beginning to push eastward into Macedonia. So he wants to secure his western boundary, so he goes into an alliance with, the, with Hannibal and the Carthaginians down in northern Africa. In the Second Punic War, which ends in 202 B.C., so we've skipped ahead a little bit. We started off with the, uh, with the Ptolemies establishing the kingdom in Egypt in about 300, and now we're up to about 200 B.C., The Second Punic War ends, and the Roman army under Scipio, we studied that earlier, the the Roman army under Scipio uh, went across the Mediterranean and invaded uh, Carthage and defeated Hannibal there and destroyed Carthage. Once they destroy Carthage, they're now free because they don't have to worry about their, their western border or the southern flank coming across with the Carthaginians. They're free to go after Philip and to expand into Macedonia, which they do. They expand into Macedonia, they defeat Philip, and they take over the Greek uh, peninsula. Now, that became a tremendous uh, concern now. Let me see if I can back up to our map. Here we go. That becomes a concern now to the Seleucids. Look, here is Macedonia, roughly right off the edge of the map here, and now all this area in yellow is under the control of Rome. And part of this area coming all the way over to the Bosphorus, all of this is now under Rome's uh, political control. And across the Bosphorus into Asia Minor, you have the Seleucid Empire and this growing threat on the west called Rome. So they have to do something now to secure their western border. And this becomes a great concern to the Seleucid ruler at this time, who is known as Antiochus the Great. He is Antiochus the Third, and he is the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we're going to be studying a lot more of in this lesson. So first of all, Antiochus decided that, that he needed to solidify his empire, so he heads east, and he gains control of Parthia in the east. And that becomes a major source of taxation for him. And then he heads to the south. Now, remember how um, in the prophecy in in Daniel 8, verse 9, it talks about the fact that he will become exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east. So there is uh, this initial movement here to gain control of the east over Parthia and in the south. But he is concerned about the Romans in the west. So he begins to push up this way towards the west, and he's going to invade over into Greece to seize control of Greece and to take it away from the, from the Romans. But the Romans respond, and in three battles, they uh, destroy Antiochus the Great's uh, army. They defeat him, first of all, right down in this area at Thermopylae, which was the scene of the famous battle with the Spartans, but in 191 B.C., they, the uh, uh, Seleucids, or Antiochus III, is defeated there. 
Then his navy is defeated out in the Aegean Sea. And the next year, in 190, at the Battle of Magnesia, his army is defeated one more time. So after three major defeats, he no longer has the ability to make war against the Romans. And the Romans impose a peace treaty on him at Apamea in 189 B.C., that is as harsh as the armistice was on the Germans at the end of World War One, And, of course, that of course set things up for World War Two. And in the same way, the Peace of Apamea set up everything that was going to happen for the next 150 years in uh, ancient history. Now, here are the conditions of the Peace of Apamea. First of all, they, the... Um, Antiochus III had to surrender all of his territory in Asia Minor. He had to give up everything, and this hurt because that was some of his wealthiest territory and gave him some of his uh, gave him his largest tax base. The second thing they had to do was to surrender all their elephants. Now you raise your eyebrows at that, but but see that's their heavy cavalry, that's their heavy armored divisions. So after you give up your your uh, elephants. You no longer have your heavy armor to go after the enemy, and so that's a major disarmament policy. That's the same thing that the the uh, Allies did to the Germans at the end of World War One, and making them give up all of their weaponry. Third, they had to surrender all the ships of his fleet. Well, that hurts because now you don't have a navy to protect your uh, commercial uh, and your merchant fleet out on the Mediterranean. And it also, the ships also provided a basis for communication, so he has to give up his communication base and protection for his merchants. Fourth, no troops can be recruited for his army. They always built their armies off of a large number of, uh, of, uh, of soldiers from, that they recruited from other, other areas. And, uh, he couldn't recruit troops in Asia Minor, Greece, or in the Aegean, uh, sea area. And then fifth, and this was the harshest part, they had to pay 52,000 talents. That's the equivalent of several billion dollars to the Romans over a period of 12 years. Now, this was going to completely strap their treasury and bankrupt them. So they had to figure out where in the world are we going to come up with 52,000 talents so we can pay off the Romans every year. Ah, that sets up the whole play for for. Um, the future history, because if you have to come up with that kind of money, then you have to go conquer some people so you can take all their money. Now, what happens is, remember I said Antiochus III started off by heading uh, east, and he secured his the, the regions in Parthia, what is now modern uh, Iraq. Now, this was a very wealthy area at that time still because of all the residual effect from the Babylonians. So if you were living in Parthia and you heard about the terms of the peace of Apamea, the first thing that you would realize is this meant that that Antiochus was going to be putting his hands in your pocket. It's just like what's going on in Norwich right now is they have the highest tax rate around here and they can't quite figure out how to support their education system anymore, so they're going to have to come along and raise taxes. And what's so bad, what I can't understand is with tax rates that high, why they can't have a decent education system over there. And it's so bad, their tax rates are so bad that the teachers who teach in Norwich would rather lose their job than have their taxes go up. So, you know, there's always problems with taxation in some places like, California, when was it back in the 70s, you have a tax revolt. And that's what happened to Antiochus the Great. There was a tax revolt in his eastern provinces, so he had to send his army east in order to uh, quell that revolt. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have banks. They didn't have a Federal Reserve Bank like we do, and they didn't have uh, savings and loans here and there that they could send somebody into to, to rob and get money. But they had temples. And the temples in the ancient world were where people stored their valuables because nobody would violate the sanctuary of the gods, so they figured their money was safe. So Antiochus begins to head east with his army, and he just hits every major town and goes into the local temple and uh, wipes it out and takes all the money for himself. Well, that aggravated a few people, so when he came to Susa, which is, was the former capital of the uh, Babylonian or the Media Persia Empire, uh, when he went into the temple of uh, Baal in order to uh, 
relieve them of all of their wealth. One of the priests of Baal named Heliodorus didn't like that so much, so he assassinated him. Well, another thing that had happened while all of this is going on, another thing that had happened is that Rome wanted some level of security for their uh, their reparation payment. So if you're gonna, it's one thing to tell the uh, Seleucids that they have to pay off. 52,000 talents of silver, and it's another thing to, to guarantee it. So what they did to make sure that Antiochus III would pay off his, uh, his reparation payments is they took his youngest son, Antiochus IV, they took his youngest son as a hostage back to Rome. That'll act as security for their uh, reparation payments. So Antiochus goes to Rome, and during that time, he is educated in the best Roman schools, and he becomes friends with uh, a number of his childhood friends, later became some of the major players in Roman history. So they held Antiochus IV in Rome. Now, when Antiochus III dies, he's got, an, he's got a, another son, Seleucus the, the, that will be Seleucus III. And he, Seleucus III, or excuse me, Seleucus IV becomes the uh, king from 187 to 175. And his youngest son is Demetrius. So Seleucus decides that his younger brother really shouldn't be a hostage in Rome anymore. So he's going to send his son to Rome in exchange for Antiochus IV. Now, that's not really a bad deal because he knows that Demetrius is going to get a really good education in Rome, and so he's going to come out uh, the better for it. So Antiochus is released when Demetrius gets to Rome, and Antiochus begins to work his way back home. Well, on the way, he comes to Athens, beautiful Athens with all of its education, all of its culture, and he decides to take a year or two off and and spend some time in Athens and get to know the Greeks and learn a few things. And he just falls in love with Greek culture. And at that point, he becomes to get the, begins to get the idea that the one thing that's going to enable him to unify the empire is if he Hellenizes everybody. If everybody has a Greek language, Greek customs, Greek religion, then he can bring unity to this diverse empire that he has in the East. So... About this time, Seleucus IV dies, and Antiochus gets back home as quick as he can because he is going to uh, maneuver things so that he's going to strand Demetrius back in Rome, his nephew. And there is a younger uh, child, just an infant at that time, Anti- that would have been Antiochus IV, but he uh, is going to manipulate things so that he gets control and he he becomes the king. So he he takes over after manipulating things, and he's so impressed with Greek religion, and he's so impressed with himself that eventually he's going to have aspirations of deity, and he takes the title uh, of Epiphanes. And, in fact, on his coins, he had the slogan stamped, Theos Epiphanes, which means God manifest or God incarnate. So he certainly has aspirations of uh, of deity, but the Jews always muttered Epimenes under their, under their breath uh, as sort of a play on words because that meant madman or idiot. <clears throat> so they recognized that he really did have a couple of screws loose, and that really is going to become worse later on. He is going to go nuts. So when we look down at verse 10, we read, and it, um, now verse 9, out, out of... Um, one of them came forth a rather small horn, let me get this up on the screen, a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. This small horn is Antiochus. He starts off with inauspicious beginnings, and he is going to gradually accumulate power. He's going to consolidate the power in the east, and then he's going to look south, and he's going to look down at Jerusalem, and he's going to hear a rumor that there is a vast amount of wealth, gold and silver articles, uh, and, and vast amounts of money in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's going to think, hmm, this is the solution to my problem. I'll just raid the treasury at the temple in, in Jerusalem. So he's going to have to do battle, though, because at this point, 
Uh, the entire area of Palestine is still under the control of the Ptolemies in Egypt. So he is going to head south, and he is going to, uh, three times he's going to invade Egypt. But we, before we get to that, we have to stop and come to our next point, which is on, has to do with the history of Egypt. Now let's, I mean the history of Judah. What's going on in Judah during this time? So we've looked at the Hellenization of the Jews in Egypt. We looked at the the, the peace of uh, Apamea and the consequences of that. And now we're going to have to look at what's going on in Judah at this time. Now let's back up, look at this map. Here is the breakdown of what's of the these ancient empires. We have the uh, Ptolemaic Empire down here in Egypt. And at this time, and we're going to see, they still had control of this area of Palestine, but they're going to quickly lose it to Antiochus. He's going to gradually take control of Israel. This is going to set the stage for one of the greatest revolts that ever took place in the ancient world. And that should bring us to, um, well, before we get there, I want to read a summary of what happens from two passages in the book of Maccabees. Now, if you were... Many of you were raised in a Catholic church, and you had several books in your Old Testament that aren't in your Protestant Bible, and they're called the Apocrypha, because they were never accepted as Scripture. They were translated originally by Jerome because he thought they were good history. In fact, in Jerome's Vulgate, the Latin Bible, when he translated these books, he translated them because they provided good historical information, and he thought people ought to be aware of, of what was in these books. But he did not think of them as Scripture. But because they were included with the Bible, it wasn't long before people began to think they had the same weight, the same authority as the bo- other books in the Bible. So that's why they are called the Apocrypha. They've never been accepted. Uh, they were never accepted as Scripture until after the Protestant Reformation. And the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, finally formally accepted them as as Scripture. But two of the books are called that are, that are located there are First and Second Maccabees, and they have to do with this period, the history of the Jews between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you ought to read them sometimes; fascinating reading, and it's, it's good history. It's just not Scripture. In First Maccabees one twenty nine to thirty two, we read, and after two years' time. The king, that is Antiochus, sent his chief collector of tribute unto the cities of Judah, and he came into Jerusalem with a great multitude. And he spake words of peace unto them in deceit, and they gave him credence. And he fell suddenly upon the city and smote it very sore. I just love the thundering diction of the old King James. And destroyed much people of Israel. And when he had taken the spoils of the city, he set it on fire and pulled down the houses and the walls thereof round about. And the women and the children took they captive and took possession of the cattle, and many of the people were gathered unto them, every one that forsook the law, and they committed evils in the land, and drove the Israelites into hiding places, wherever they could find a refuge. And on the fifteenth day of the month, uh, Kislev in the old Hebrew, Chasalu here, in the hundred forty and fiftieth year, hundred forty and fifth year, they built an abomination of desolation upon the altar. You want to know where that phrase comes from? That's where it comes from. It's referenced in Daniel 9, there will be an abomination. But the phrase abomination of desolation comes from this passage. Uh, They built an abomination of desolation upon the altar and built altars in the cities of Judah round about. And they burnt incense at the doors of their houses and in the streets. And having rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they destroyed every copy of Scripture they could, they burnt them with fire. And then in... First Maccabees 1, 52 to 61, we read, And where was found with any a book of the covenant, or if any found pleasure in the law, the king's commandment was that they should put him to death. Thus did they, according to their might, unto the Israelites every month, to as many as were found in the cities. And on the twenty-fifth day of the month, they sacrificed upon the altar, which was upon the altar of burnt offering. And according to the commandment, they put to death women that had caused their children to be circumcised, and they hanged the infants about their necks, and plundered their houses, and slew them that had circumcised them. Now, this is where all of this is headed. It is going to be one of the greatest assaults on Israel 
in the ancient world. And once again, you always have to think, and think of this in terms of the modern context. Whenever you see Israel being assaulted, this is always Satan's ploy because he is out to prove that God can't be God. And the one way he can do it is, uh, the one way he thinks he can do it is by destroying Israel. God has made certain promises to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, that God will give them a certain amount of real estate and they will have uh, certain blessings in the land. If Satan can destroy every Jew so that God cannot fulfill his promise, then Satan thinks he can win. That is why Satan is the father of anti-Semitism, and that's why anti-Semitism is such an evil. And Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the anti-Semitism that we will discover in the Antichrist. Now, in Daniel 8.12 we read, In Daniel 8.12 we read, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now, the host here is first mentioned in verse 10 where it talks about the small horn, that is Antiochus, that it grew up to the host of heaven. The host of heaven here is Israel, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. That's talking about Antiochus' assault on Israel, which we just read about from First Maccabees. And it even, that is the horn in verse 11, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, that is, he's going to think he's equal with God, that is similar to the sin of, of Lucifer. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And that's talking about what we just read about, that the Antichrist is going to defile the temple. And then in verse 12, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. And it, that is the horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now, the question we have to ask is, what is this transgression? See, this isn't the transgression of the little horn in uh, desecrating the temple. This is a transgression, a sin on the part of Israel. Because of some sin on the part of Israel, they are going to be given over to the horn for divine discipline. And God is going to allow this desecration of the temple to take place because of divine discipline on Israel. So we have to understand some things about the history of Israel during this intertestamental period in order to know why uh, God is bringing this divine discipline on them. As I said earlier, the Jews in Alexandria had brought in Hellenization. They were coming, becoming more and more Greek-like in their thinking and their customs and their culture. They, that produced an equal and opposite reaction with the rise of the Hasidim or the Hasidians, a loyal, conservative, uh, traditional group that eventually gave birth to the Pharisees. But the, this creates a tension. There is now division in Palestine. Now, if you are the king sitting up in Syria, in Damascus, and you're or in Antioch, which is where Antiochus had his headquarters, and you're looking down on your domain, and there's one group fighting another group, you want peace because you don't believe either side's right because you've rejected their religion. Uh, so Antiochus wants to quell all of this disagreement and bring it under control. Now, at this point, there's also a fight among the high priesthood. On the one side, you have a high priest by, by the name of, of Onias. His uh, Hebrew name was Hanya, but he is generally referred to as Onias. That's his Greek name. Now, he is the conservative. He is the traditionalist. Then you have his liberal Hellenizing brother, whose name in Hebrew was Yeshua, same as Jesus or Joshua. It's the same root, root name. But he's known in history by his Greek name, Jason. And so Jason comes along, and he offers an enormous bribe to Antiochus, telling Antiochus that if he will um, <coughs> kick Onias out of the high priesthood, and appoint Jason in his place, that Jason is going to come up 
with incredible amounts of money out of the temple treasury for Antiochus. Well, Antiochus is still stretching it to come up with the reparation payments to Rome, so he likes that idea, and he kicks uh, Onias out, and he puts Jason in. But Jason is a Hellenizer. Now, at this time, part of the deal was that Jason would turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. So one of the things that Jason did was he opened up a big gymnasium on the model of the Greek gymnasiums, and he introduces all of the Greek athletic contests and all of the Greek games. Now, this uh, really upset the traditional Jews. Uh, for one thing, whenever the, the uh, Greeks were involved in their athletic contests, they did it completely naked. They did it in the nude. In fact, that's what the term uh, gymnasio originally meant was in the nude. And so when it says to discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the term there is gymnasio, and it means to strip naked. And it doesn't mean physically, but it means in the sense of stripping off anything that would uh, hinder you or any encumbrance in an athletic contest. So the all their athletic context with the new. We just got through with the Winter Olympics, so just a little side note. When the uh, when they were resurrecting the whole idea of the Olympics back in the I think it was in the late 1800s, they had not had any Olympic contest since the demise of the Roman Empire, and so this is all new. So these university students who are all and university uh, athletes who are all involved in this are classic students. And so they're going back and they're reading all of the classic accounts of the Olympics. And when they showed up to do their first trial run at the Olympics, these guys all came running out of the out of their uh, uh, dressing room butt naked. That caused quite a stir. That was the only time that that happened. But you can imagine that with the uh, uh, the, the rigid, strict... Uh, traditional legalistic Jews that they were not real happy with the fact that uh, down here at the uh, local stadium, all the Greek athletes and the Jews that were joining them were out running around in the nude. Not only that, the Jewish athletes were ashamed because they were circumcised. So they were trying to figure out ways to uh, surgically alter their circumcision. Now, this was creating a lot of trauma among the uh, rabbis. Furthermore, the priests were becoming... uh, uh, entranced with all this sports activity. You know, they wanted to go down there and place a few side bets, and they wanted to, uh, after they got through with whatever Sabbath uh, uh, responsibilities they had, they wanted to go watch the uh, Saturday afternoon college games. Well, that created more problems. So this is, is about to explode in in Jerusalem. Well, on top of that, Jason begins decides to send a team up to the games that are going to be held in Tyre. Now, remember, Tyre has a less than positive uh, history with Israel. Tyre is where Jezebel was from. Tyre was the source of, uh, of Baal religion. And so the games up in Tyre were dedicated to Hercules. So anytime you entered the games, you had to bow down and you had to uh, do obeisance to and honor Hercules. So Jason sends his, uh, his uh, athletic team up to uh, up to Tyre to take part in the games, and that angered a lot of the conservatives back in Jerusalem, and they are going to be using their money to further the Herculean games. But what they did was when they got there, they ended up uh, giving their money to the Tyrian, to the navy uh, of Tyre in order to circumvent some of the problems there. Now, there's a third guy on the scene for a high priest by the name of Menelaus. And this guy isn't even a, a, a Levite. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's not from the tribe of, of Levi, but he wants to be high priest. So he comes along, and he and Jason apparently hasn't been able to come up with all the money for Antiochus that he wanted. So Menelaus says, oh, I'm going to give you a lot more money. And so Jason is kicked out. Antiochus kicks Jason out. And puts Menelaus in. Now this really angers conservatives because because this is just blatant bribery. He's not a Levite. He's not a descendant of Aaron. Uh, he's just complete disregard uh, for the Jews. He he's uh, and in the in the uh, 
and, and, and the period after the captivity, the priesthood is supposed to be a Zedekite priesthood. Of course, he's not a Zedekite, he's not a Levite, he's not a descendant of Aaron. So there is a strong reaction among the Jews. Now, at this time, and the period of time that we're talking about has been roughly the period from about from about 174 down to 171. Now, notice this date, 171, because it is from 171 to 164 are going to be the last seven years of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. Now, look down to verse 14. This is a conversation between two angels that Daniel overhears. Verse 14, we read, and he said to me, that is the, the, um, the angel, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, the holy place, um, it will be, will be before the holy place is properly restored. Now, 2,300 evenings is approximately seven years. Now, I also want you to notice it's morning and evening. That means that these are literal 24-hour days, just like the 24-hour days in Genesis chapter 1. Because there, at the end of each day, it said it was morning and it was evening, day 1. So in consistent exegesis, morning and evening equates to 24-hour days, and this is roughly a period of seven years. Now, the reason that's important is because in the early 1800s, the Seventh-day Adventists came along, and they said, well, these 23, the 2300 is years, and they figured out that those years ended up in about, I think it was 1844, and that's when Jesus was coming back. Well, Jesus didn't come back. They all went out and stood on a mountaintop waiting for Jesus to show up, and he didn't. So they had to go back and figure out another way to, to interpret the 2300. But the 2300 is seven years, and it's this last seven-year period. Notice how that's analogous to the seven years of the tribulation. It's this last seven-year period where everything is going to fall apart, and Antiochus is really going to go nuts. Well, he's been going down three different invasions into Egypt, and on one of these, the rumor comes back that Antiochus has been killed. So Jason, who's been exiled, comes back in and deposes Menelaus, and the Hasidim, the Hasidians, are all celebrating, and every all the conservatives are celebrating, they're having parties, and all of a sudden, in walks Antiochus the fourth. He, he's not dead. And when he sees he's all the Jews celebrating his death, well, he decides he's going to get a little vengeance. So he attacks Jerusalem, kills thousands of Jews, and sells thousands more into slavery. And he went into the temple and carried off almost all of the gold and silver, silver vessels. And then he treats Jerusalem as a captive city. Well, eventually the Jews retake control because Antiochus had to get his army together and head down to Egypt again because he's trying to keep the, the Ptolemies from retaking Palestine. Well, when he gets down there, and the reason he thinks that he can attack the Egyptians, remember the Egyptians are allied with Rome. The reason he thinks he can attack the Egyptians is the Romans are tied up in a fight up in Macedonia. Well, they end that war. And now all of a sudden Antiochus is in trouble. Suddenly, as he's in Alexandria, uh, a ship comes in, from a Roman ship comes in with a Roman legate by the name of Popilius Laenus. And in a tremendous scene, very famous scene in the ancient world, any of you who know the story of the Alamo knows that knows the famous scene of, of uh, Travis uh, drawing a line in the sand and all those who are going to continue to stay and fight the Mexicans cross over, and, and we don't know whether that actually happened or not, but that's the legend. Well, this is as famous a scene in the ancient world because this Popilius Lanus was a childhood buddy of Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV is thinking, boy, do I have it made now. This is my old childhood buddy, and I'm going to be able to get exactly what I want. But... Uh, Lanus comes up, and he has a scroll that, from the Senate in Rome that he gives to Antiochus, and the scroll is basically a demand for Antiochus to leave Egypt and to take his army with him and to give up all claims uh, on Egyptian territory. And Antiochus says, well, you know, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to have a committee study this. Let's have a congressional investigative team. Uh, he's just stalling for time. Well, Lanus pulls out his sword and draws a circle around Antiochus and says, you can't leave the circle until you make a decision. 
Well, this humiliates Antiochus, and he goes nuts. It's after this that he has his delusions of grandeur and delusions of deity. So he heads back to Israel, and on the way he seeks vengeance on the Jews. He sends in Apollonius, his chief tax collector, with 22,000 men to attack Jerusalem once again on the Sabbath. Most of the male population was killed, and the women and children are enslaved. The walls are torn down, and the old city is now garrisoned by Syrian troops. As a result of this, he suspends all temple ritual. He burns every copy of the scripture that he can get a hold of. He forbids the observance of any special days like the Sabbath. All dietary laws are abolished. Any woman caught circumcising their infant was executed, and the child was executed. And then he went into the temple, desecrated it, sacrificed a pig on the uh, altar in the Holy of Holies, and dedicated the temple to Zeus. And that is the abomination of desolation, which is a type of what the Antichrist will do halfway in to the tribulation. Now, we'll come back and wrap up the rest of Daniel 8 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to realize that there is true predictive prophecy in Scripture, that you outlined all of these events in Daniel chapter 8 some two to three hundred years before they were actually fulfilled. Uh, No one could guess that. No one could uh, develop this kind of detail on the basis of tarot cards or astrology or any other human system of of, uh, foretelling the future. This is just another evidence that you have revealed yourself to us and you have uh, given us a, a perfect revelation of yourself and your love for us, especially in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we've studied, to put these historical details together in our own thinking so that we can have a greater understanding and appreciation of your plan for human history. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.